0: Hello and welcome to another episode of the Surgical Society podcast with myself Frank Davis as your host. Please make sure to follow and rate this podcast as well as follow Cardiff University Surgical Society Instagram cu underscore surgsoc. This week I'm delighted to be joined by Dr Matt Morgan. Matt is an intensive care consultant who worked at the University Hospital of Wales. He is most well known for his best-selling book Critical as well as his open letter to the public at the height of the COVID-19 pandemic. He now lives in Australia with his family and is working on his second book. So hello, Dr. Matt Morgan. It's a pleasure to have you on the Surgical Society podcast today.
1: Thank you. Lovely to be here. Thank you for asking.
0: That's okay. And uh, I'm talking to you from Australia as well, or you're in Australia, I should say, Um how come you're over there at the moment
1: yeah as a family we are in western australia at the minute in perth to be precise and uh, i've worked here now since april last year we're here on a career break and working in the local intensive care unit in a big great academic hospital there so uh, yeah it's been a, a fab time and we're in the mists of summer at the minute in perth so it's pretty hot
0: well, wow, yeah, that sounds that sounds very nice. So what sort of uh, stimulated the move, sort of, you know, across the other side of the world?
1: Yeah, I think a few things. We lived here back about a decade ago. I did an exchange. I worked in the hospital I'm in now uh, as a trainee for a fellowship, and that was great. And we always looked back at photos every Christmas time where it was cold in the UK and thought, uh, you know, should should we return? And I think there were a lot of reasons. You know, post the pandemic, that had been a, a crazy time for me, my family. My wife's a teacher. Uh, you kind of reevaluate life, I suppose, and realise you only live once. My children are at an age that it's either now we give it a go or never, because of mm-hmm. schooling. And you know, I think doing those things is good. Uh, in medicine, there's a temptation to stick around the same area, the same rotations, the same hospital, the same country and that's good in a way um but also i think there can be a lot learned from uh, stepping outside and and doing something a bit different so uh, those are the reasons really
0: absolutely and talking of your career so you're a um an intensive care unit consultant can you tell us a little bit about that and and what that involves
1: yeah so I've trained in anesthetics uh, a bit in medicine a bit in emergency medicine and then specialized in intensive care medicine and that's you know a new specialty it's only really been around since 1952 with the polio Copenhagen epidemic and it's a specialty for me that combines all the things I loved as a student and as a as a junior doctor really it combines hardcore science and Physics and machines and practical procedures, but it also combines medicine, diagnostics, and the tough human side of medicine in terms of life and death. Uh, so for me, it combines all those bits really well. And so a day to day job at the minute will be looking after around 12 critically ill patients who may, may be ill from major trauma having a really bad car accident, uh, many miles away, for example, or it could be from an out-of-hospital cardiac arrest after a big heart attack, or caring for somebody after a a major elective operation. So it's a super varied place and and a great varied job too.
0: And ICU in particular during the pandemic got a lot of spotlight on it. And of course, the people that work in there, as a consultant, you're the, the sort of the leader of that team. How did you experience the pandemic?
1: Yeah, well, I'm I'm glad you said team because ultimately, you know, that is absolutely what it is. And the most important thing in an intensive care unit isn't, you know, the doctor, it's not the ventilator, it's, it's the nurse, really, caring for the patient as part of a, a complex multidisciplinary team from speech and language therapists, to physiotherapists, pharmacists, everybody. Um, but yeah, it's fair to say, I see you did have a lot of the spotlight, if you like, in the pandemic, although actually community medicine had just a difficult time, so did respiratory medicine, so did lots of specialties really. It was a, a bizarre once-in-a-lifetime event to go through, which was equally terrifying, sometimes exciting, uh, sometimes worrying, and sometimes good, you know, it, it's hard to summarize it in a sentence. I think probably the best way to summarise it is the word "intensivist" made it into the dictionary for the first time ever. Huh. So you know it, it, it's true that uh, you know it, it perhaps gave people a taste of of what intensive care medicine is.
0: And how did you personally deal with the pressure from you know from being the, the consultant in in ICU and and sort of what did you what did you see was it was it awful you know was it really hard not to take that things like that home
1: yeah you know it was like you saw on the news, you know, especially in those early waves. It was nothing like we'd ever experienced before. We were looking after critically ill patients all over the hospital, using sometimes volunteers, sometimes medical students, sometimes dental students to care for patients. It was all of those things um but equally, the pandemic was you know hard for for everyone. My wife's a teacher, it was hard for her. It was hard for people being told their job is not secure. It was hard financially. And bizarrely as an intensive care doctor, I kind of went to work and did the job that I've been trained to do, was paid for it. Uh, so it, in many ways, it was less different for me than for many other people you know, in a bizarre way. you know That did differ according to whether it was wave one, wave two or what happened subsequently. And it's true that it it was hard. You know, there are high levels of people who are struggling in health care ever since, uh, not just because of the pandemic, but that perhaps was the straw that broke the camel's back. Um, but I think the way we got through it is the way many people get through it with friends, family, people who love them, trying to do the things that bring you joy uh, and equally uh, remembering the good things that you did there and the patients who survived thanks to the hard work of the intensive care team.
0: Sure, and and talking to the patients that survived, you actually met one of the patients that you cared for um, during the the pandemic. Can you sort of describe to us just the emotions that, that that brings?
1: Yeah, so it's quite unusual in the past to meet people from the intensive care unit who who get through and get back to life and work that has changed. Thanks, thanks to things like follow-up clinics. And now we can follow up patients and their families. And I think it's a really important part of what we do. Otherwise you can sometimes feel a bit nihilistic about the outcomes. Uh, I sometimes call that burn in rather than burn out, you know, really seeing the consequences of of your actions. I was lucky enough to look after a, a young chap uh, called Tavith, who who's in the public domain so he, he did a, a piece for BBC uh, TV uh, about his illness with severe covid and he went on to have probably the highest level of care that you can give to critically ill patients which is ECMO where blood is ox- oxygen is added directly to your blood so he went off to London to have that done and he you know amazingly and thankfully survived and yeah, I got the chance to meet him on the grounds of the hospital where he had been critically ill six weeks before and also meeting, importantly, his wife and his his young daughter. Uh, and it's those kind of things that if you've had a horrible day or a week or a month, you know, it, it helps you realise what's important in life, really.
0: Absolutely. And during that COVID pandemic, you also wrote an open letter to the public, which really sort of took off and people really resonated with And when you read that letter, I can almost sense your emotion during that. So what was the motivation behind that? And did you expect it to take off quite how it did?
1: It's funny. A lot of the things, you know, I've written for the BMJ for many years. I've written a book called Critical about intensive care. Uh, There's another book coming out this March called One Medicine. So a lot of the time, there's some kind of big writing projects which I'm involved with. Mm. But often it's the small things which you just maybe write on a piece of paper in your coffee break or after a day at work that resonate. And, and that letter, which was called a letter from the ICU, was exactly that. The truth was I, I wrote it after a shift in the hospital, before we looked after the first critically ill patient with, with COVID. Uh, so it was late-ish at night. And I was actually writing it to to my family, really. I was writing it to my parents. Uh, to my parents in law to my brother in law who's a wheelchair user and it was classed as a, a vulnerable person mm. and we were hearing so much talk about oh don't worry covid will only you know affect those vulnerable and i thought well you know that's that's great but how do those vulnerable people feel just to be told oh, you know it'll be you mm. effectively so i wrote in you know t- 10 minutes or so Uh, a letter basically to my parents or or to my brother-in-law and to others and uh, that was that and within you know a week or two there were film crews and uh, it was in lots of newspapers and obviously it wasn't uh, it wasn't just me who was saying those things but I guess phrasing it as a letter perhaps struck a chord with with the public.
0: Sure and and you mentioned Critical as well there your best-selling book how is it, and you've also mentioned film crews how is it being a doctor? it's obviously a pressured job anyway, but then to also have that um you know lifestyle where people do recognize you and know you and and you're sort of in that public domain does it does it ever add pressure to what you're doing
1: well I guess the first thing to say is it's it's a niche um domain yeah, you know i'm in no way um you know have that affect my daily life, but there are occasions where patients or colleagues or others have read stuff I've I've written. Um and I guess yeah to some extent it, it kind of when I publish something, especially in something that's maybe controversial or, or says something I really wanted to say, it, it does kind of worry me, I suppose, or make me anxious, probably more than the actual work in medicine <laughs> sometimes. And some of the toughest days during the pandemic were, yes, looking after very ill people like David, like I mentioned but actually it was also dealing with some of the flack on social media or some of the misinformation which was then then directed at me or, or some other things, some of the abuse through social media. Yeah, and bizarrely those things were kind of equally as stressful yeah. in many ways. But what I would say is you can also have a huge impact doing those other things. You know, in ICU I meet 12 patients every day perhaps And by writing as something as simple as that, you can maybe affect, you know, hundreds, thousands, tens of thousands of people. So I I think writing in general, in medicine can be a really powerful tool. And I think it's something we're probably not taught enough uh, in medical school.
0: Absolutely. And yeah, did you expect your book critical to sort of blow up in, in the way that it did?
1: Well you know I'm really glad it was it was read by people and I'm really glad especially for the patients who gave up their time and told me their stories uh, to go in into the book I, you know that's the thing that I was most glad of really and it's a slightly unusual way to write a medical book in many ways you know often there are details which are changed and names which are changed but a lot of the patients in in critical well firstly I you know I treated all of them I met them all then subsequently all the families of those who had subsequently died and a lot of them said yep we're really happy to be in it but uh, you know I want you to not change details or change names you know they actually wanted to be to be them uh, and I think that's you know that's quite important I think when we are writing from a medical perspective uh, and I think that that made it slightly different perhaps.
0: No, oh, definitely. Is it? It's testament as well to like the sort of the trust that the public put in you as a, as a doctor, isn't it? That they don't even want their their name changed, you know. Um, I like to read you a a, a quote from when I uh, from reading a critical, which was: I place my stethoscope onto their chest to listen for the lub dub sound of the heart valves. Then I wait. I wait a long, silent, slow five minutes. I listen for silence and feel for the uh, presence of absence. No sound is heard and no pulse is felt. Uh, this podcast goes out to, to many medical students and junior doctors. How should we be dealing with death? As, as an ICU consultant, I'm sure that's something that you are used to dealing with now.
1: Yeah, actually, uh, around you know, as many as one in five people who come into ICU may die. And so deaths should be something that we are really good at dealing with you know not only the practicalities of making sure patients are in no pain or discomfort and supporting the family but also that communication uh, around it so you know I, th- I think that's really important and i absolutely love the work that others including people like katherine Mannix, who's written some fantastic books on on this and and others have done um I, I guess I'd say three things for people listening to this. First of all, that uh, death is a part of life and that you can impact on patients and families hugely by, by managing that well, so it's not something to shy away from. Secondly, I think it's really important to use the word die. And we don't say that enough sometimes. You know, there can be a lot of beating around the bush. But when I speak to families, I'll, I'll always use the word, you know, I'm worried that your mum, dad, brother, sister, son, daughter is sick enough that they may die. You know, actually use that word. And thirdly, know that the things you say can can impact on people. Um, you know, I, I went to visit some families uh, through through Critical whose relatives had sadly died. And it's amazing what they remember sometimes decades later you know it's it's often not the words you use but it's how you've made them feel and so even when you're looking after patients who are dying uh, you can be a great doctor in those times you can be a great form of support uh, and you know yes treatment may stop but but care shouldn't
0: sure and are there any patients or any of those stories that that really stick out to you that you sort of carry with you every day
1: yeah, there's certainly a phrase in medicine uh, that those we carry. And I think all of us, if we close our eyes or at night or, or think back, there are certain patients who really stick stick with you and stick with us. And I don't know why that is. Maybe it's because they have something in common with you. Maybe it was something to an important part of your training or your life. Uh, and, yeah, I, you know, I've got a, a large number, you know, one, one of them being somebody who's in the book, Critical, called Chris, who was a student who uh, sadly died of severe infection or sepsis after traveling to Kenya uh, as part of a school trip. And um, yeah, he's, him and his family actually are probably somebody who A, made me want to do intensive care medicine, um, B, made me want to do some research into infection and sepsis. Uh, and even now, you know, I think I think about him and his family uh, at, at different times and, and reflect on that. So yeah, and I think that's that's a good thing actually that we keep those patients with us Uh, not only the ones perhaps who died but also the ones that that didn't that you made a difference to um and i think that i think that's okay
0: yeah and you sound like you have um an incredibly close relationship um sometimes with these patients especially for the book you um you know went and met them and, and of course like used their real names are you ever sort of worried that you can get, you know, too close to a patient and that affects judgment?
1: Yeah. And, you know, I'm, these are examples, the ones in the book that I, I particularly did have a, a good ongoing relationship with, you know, it's not that every person I ever look after I, you know, meet up with and, and remember forever. I can't say that that's true because it, because it, it's not, but equally, I think it's important sometimes to push a bit further. Um, and, I think especially in the context of ICU, which is a very sterile environment, you know, it's very abnormal in many ways. It's where we feel comfortable. But when we step outside of that environment, and people in the community, of course, do this all the time, uh, GPs, community nurses and others. Uh, but as hospital doctors, we rarely do that. Uh, and so stepping into somebody's home completely change his perspective uh, and i think it's it's an important uh, thing to do and if you can do that through training as a medical student as a junior doctor uh, do that in a supported safe way then i think that will really open open your eyes really
0: yeah and you've got a second book coming out that you mentioned one medicine that comes out march of of this year is it true that what inspired you to write this book was you were eating some biscuits and you looked at some birds flying out, out the window? Is that the case?
1: Yeah, so uh, One Medicine uh, is coming out in early March. It's available for, for pre-orders now through all good and bad uh, bookshops. And it, it, it's quite a different book from Critical, really. It's a lot more fun in many ways. It involves travel. Yes, it involves patient stories, science, but it also involves amazing animals who survive in crazy environments so you know how does the ice fish which doesn't have any hemoglobin deal with oxygen at the bottom of the antarctic sea shelf how do birds fly you know at the altitude of fast jets and get away with it um but the book starts you're right with a story about a, a patient who had a cardiac arrest from aspirating or inhaling uh, on on a biscuit, mm. on a hobnob, in fact, a very specific biscuit. But there are other varieties of oat biscuits <laughs> available, I just have to say, for the podcast. Yeah. And whilst that was happening, I'd cycled to work that morning. I had a load of flies on my face when I had arrived at the hospital, because uh, it was a hot day in, in Cardiff, uh, which is a rarity. Mm. And as we were looking after this patient, yeah, a flock of birds went past the window and I just wondered, well, you know, why didn't they inhale the flies that were on my face? Why weren't they aspirating on things all the time? I was revising for my exams at the time and uh, I, rather than revising the kind of the dull physics or pharmacology, I actually bought a book which is on my shelf um, behind me, all about comparative uh, animal physiology. And I spent a lot of that week rather than revising, reading about how do birds breathe, how does the giraffe breathe, why has the kangaroo got three vaginas. So that started my um, obsession with animals.
0: Yeah, I was going to say, I I wouldn't even know where to begin, sort of trying to work out why, you know, why those things happen in in the animal world.
1: Well, I I guess the, the answers are all there. And it's not that I've figured them out i've just read stuff which perhaps as doctors medical students we don't get exposed to you know why do vets train separately from doctors Mm -hmm. why are the departments of medicine and veterinary sciences separate Uh, why do we take separate oaths you know we swear an oath to one species and vets swear an oath to every other species on earth it Mm -hmm. seems very odd especially now we know the world is so integrated Mm -hmm. again, we've seen that through the pandemic, the way zoonotic diseases affect us all. We could think about antibiotic resistance, we could think about climate change. So for me, bringing human and non-human medicine together as one medicine, hence the title of the book, it it kind of is obvious and it's weird that it doesn't happen. Um, Some medical schools do train vets and doctors together in the early years. um, But I think as well as the book being hopefully a a bit fun and about these weird things, it has got perhaps a larger message that, you know, we do need to come together as a, as professionals. And there's a lot to be learned from, from both sides.
0: Sure. And have you noticed any of what you've learned impact practice at all? Or do you think that's something that needs to happen?
1: Yeah, well, bizarrely it, it impacts practice all the time, but often we figure out things in human medicine and we feel really clever about it and then we look at a animal species who's been dealing with similar problems, and they've known about that for you know millions of years. So, for example, the the giraffe, uh, the way the giraffe breathes and deals with its two meter long neck, it has lots of problems with dead space, you know, space anatomical dead space that doesn't contribute to gas exchange because of its long neck. Well, there are problems with dead space in human medicine all the time people with asthma, people with lung disease, et cetera. And we now know the way to ventilate people with these conditions on the intensive care unit. But actually, giraffes have been breathing like this for 6 million years. They've got a huge tidal volume, uh, maybe 15, 20 mils per kilo. They have a very slow respiratory rate. And so when we're dealing with people with dead space in the intensive care, guess what we do? We use high tidal volume, low respiratory rate. So if only we'd looked at things before, we probably could have figured that out, you know, decades, decades ago. Uh, And there's a huge amount of other examples just like that.
0: Oh, well, I mean, yeah, it sounds absolutely incredible. I'm I'm certainly excited uh, to read that. It's been fantastic to talk to you today. And before I let you go, is there a particular message that you'd like to send to you know, the medical students listening to this, you know, about the any advice that you would give for people embarking on a on a medical career?
1: Wow, uh, good question. Yeah, I guess the, the motto which ends critical, which uh, I think is probably a good motto for medicine, uh, which says, ask questions, be nice, work hard. And I think that probably summarises it.
0: Well, that's an absolutely fantastic note to end on. So thank you very much for coming on the podcast today.
1: Thank you. Nice to see you all.
0: Thank you so much for listening to this week's episode of the Surgical Society podcast. Matt's new book, One Medicine, is out and available to buy now. Please join me in two weeks' time for the final episode of the Surgical Society podcast. I'll be speaking to the legendary Mr. Henry Marsh, acclaimed neurosurgeon and author of Do No Harm.